Welcome to Plant Stories. The modern, the old, and the crazy in between. Myth or fact? Oak trees are the number one tree to be struck by lightning. It's true, it's a fact. I uh, did a lot of digging and research into, you know, the biology of the oak tree and what I found out is that it's uh it's just because they're taller. <laughs> yeah, they're just a little taller in the regions that they grow. So on to our topic for today's episode. Yeah, today we're gonna talk about the history of house plants. And there's a lot of like interesting ways that we got to this point. But really, we're going to start with gardens. So gardens were the first kind of idea of taking a plant from its native growing habitat and then putting it somewhere else purely for aesthetic purposes. Like human beings taking this plant and putting it somewhere else so so that they can look at it. So who was having these ideas first? So kind of the first you know, recorded instance of a garden in literature were the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, Mm -hmm. which were originally supposed to be adorning the capital of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar II. Uh had supposedly built them for his wife at the time who lived in another region and missed the like mountainous florals of her homeland um the reason it's kind of weird that this is the first time this would be mentioned is because you know it's the only one of the ancient world wonders to not be officially existing (laughs) other things have had like archaeological evidence to kind of solidify their existence and this is kind of the only one where they never found anything they only know it's been mentioned a few times by different people and so that doesn't necessarily like confirm its existence but it confirms its existence in the collective consciousness of people at that time. So they describe them like they existed during the time that the writers <clears throat> who wrote about them, the first one being um, Barosis of Kos in 290 BCE. He mentions it, and then there's a couple of the writers after him that also mention it, and they write about it like it existed in 290 BCE. Um, but it would have been earlier than that mm. by a couple hundred years that they would have been built if that's if the fact that um Nebuchadnezzar built them would be true because Nebuchadnezzar's yeah. rule was that's like 400 year difference <laughs> yeah so it's definitely an interesting idea Um, They do have archaeological evidence of other gardens at that time. Mm -hmm. So there were gardens um, 
in other places in the Fertile Crescent. So that's an area of the Middle East that spans modern-day Iraq, Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, um, some of Egypt, and then Jordan, and does have some areas of, like, Turkey and Iran in there. So it's Mm -hmm. a relatively big area, but when they've excavated some of those places, they've found remnants of, like, gardens and irrigation and things like that from that time period so fertile crescent middle east region home of the first gardens yeah okay or yeah at least from what we can tell um i think they don't know exactly like what plants and stuff were there but that's kind of where they can tell the idea of of gardens were and um i would also say that since there's no, like, official location for the Hanging Gardens of Babylon themselves, there's people who think that maybe um, there, like, was a garden there that maybe wasn't that large and was exaggerated because the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are supposed to be, like, 75 feet high with, like, multiple tiers and a whole system that, like, brings water up from the river and then has it trickle down the entire thing. Mm-hmm. So it could be that they're were gardens somewhere that were maybe smaller or part of another structure and, you know, were destroyed. Um, They think maybe the gardens were actually in the place where uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife was supposedly from, because they do know that there were gardens in that area. Uh, So it could be that. But... The truth is, we just don't know. That's just the first recorded instance. <laughs> I think that says a lot about what humans desire, though. That even if it's just an idea that everybody just seemed to really love the concept that it just built and built, and they were like, oh, doesn't that sound so desirable and beautiful? And It's nice that the idea has grown to a point where it became like an official world wonder, and we don't even know if it existed. <laughs> Um, well, I didn't look it up in my notes. I didn't write it down. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I do believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that the people who talked about it were Greek. And there's kind of like this idea that maybe in in Greece that was like the idea of paradise. Mm, yeah. Would be this like big, beautiful, like very fertile, like or, ornate garden and watering garden right and that's kind of why they think maybe the explanations would be exaggerated because they would be catering to an audience who is like oh this world wonder is paradise um and maybe to someone who hadn't seen something like that before it would be mm-hmm. so you know that's one theory <laughs> so what's going on in the rest of the world Developing between, you know, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and kind of the Greek times uh, were the Banzai and Penjing uh, gardens, you know, and basically they're, these gardens are just babies. Mm-hmm. Baby trees. Baby gardens. <laughs> Little baby gardens. So the first container trees are depicted in Chinese art 
around like 600 AD, but many scholars think that these trees actually were being cultivated in China between like 500 and 1000 BC. So it seems like they were something that was very old and traditional by the time they really like started appearing in art and some of that art is like funeral um murals and things like that from you know like excavated tombs and stuff like that um and so this whole idea kind of of the miniature garden actually started in china a lot of people think bonsais um you know are the main form of this kind of art but Bonsai actually developed later on from the original Chinese art. So it's believed that the Chinese trees that were used for penjing in the beginning were actually found out in the wild and then Hmm. pruned and cultivated to be smaller so that Um, you know, they could be used specifically for this purpose. Almost all plants for, um, the penjing and the bonsai plants are full-sized plants. They're, they're not genetically altered in any way. They're not dwarf plants. They're just regular plants that are cut back to be small. And because they're continuously pruned and cut, They never have a need to get any bigger. Hmm. Because these trees are like decades and decades of years old, right? Well. If you're like master level. (laughs) Yeah. For, for, in some cases they definitely can be. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that is that they, you know, they don't need the nutrients to like, since they're not growing necessarily like that, Mm -hmm. you know, they're able to, to continue to stay in a smaller area because they, you know, they're not, obviously, like, if they were growing more leaves or more branches or whatever, they'd need a bigger root system and blah, blah, blah. So they're able to kind of, like, stay in this container by being, you know, specially cultivated. And that is kind of why it takes a master to do it. It's got to have exactly the right conditions. You've got to prune it in exactly the right way, you know. So there's a lot of that uh, in that community and that information, you know, even in these early times was often passed on through monks. Um, There's this tradition that the Chinese really value miniature things because miniature things are supposed to hold like magical kind of mystical powers. Hmm. Like a more like focused. Yeah, like focused energy almost. And so they, they really value these like little landscapes it's a lot related to like Confucianism and like Taoism, Buddhism, these ideas of like valuing yourself in nature. Penjing specifically is more meant to be a small landscape. And so there's like small bushes. They sometimes put like small little people there and things like that. And a lot of that is about perspective. So it's like, you know, putting your... Realizing how small your importance is in the bigger scheme of the landscape is kind of like what the another way these small landscapes are like culturally relevant to them. Mm-hmm. And so then in the 12th century, 
the Chinese monks brought this art of, you know, pruning these small landscapes and things to the Japanese. And while Penjing has very much stayed the same, like they do do just trees sometimes, but they're also, um, you know, full landscapes in a small tray, basically. Mm-hmm. The Japanese kind of took what they learned from the Chinese monks and then made their own version of that. So both arts kind of have their own followers, if you will, or like admirers. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, yeah, and some people think that the Chinese version is like a little bit more kitschy because it doesn't tend to be as manicured, whereas like bonsai is like very minimalist, which kind of came about from that like Buddhist idea of. <clears throat> You know, like, stripping yourself down to the bare minimum, yeah, to, like, kind of get that meaning. And so the Japanese version is a lot more like that, like, just about the plant. Um, And in both, this practice was also, like, intertwined with pottery, Hmm. especially Chinese pottery. Even, like, most bonsai artists and stuff today, the best pot you can have for... A tree would be like an antique Chinese dish because there was a belief that the tray and the tree needed to be one. That's sweet. Yeah, it was like what the point is that it's supposed to be one single entity. It is the the soil, right? It is the whole thing, um, and so they have a lot. They had a lot of influence in kind of like that industry as well. They made those um, specifically for this purpose mm-hmm. and it kind of perpetuated some of the importance of pottery penjing too compared to like the traditional bonsai um, sometimes comes with like additional art or poetry or something oh. because it has like that spiritual meaning with it as mm-hmm. well Story, and I've seen a few pictures of penjing which I was less familiar with before researching this uh, and some of their setups are wild. Like, I really like, after, like, you know, my whole life I've seen, like, bonsai trees and, like, beautiful in their essentialism. But then to see the penjing and they'll have, like, a huge rock with, like, all the cascading roots and, like, multiple different plants. And I felt like they had, I guess the, the philosophy is a bit more different. Is that, yeah, it's supposed to be, like, a whole landscape. But within that, it can be, like, a lot more intricate. Which can be really cool. And so for this kind of gardening, this was like monks and then I'm assuming like wealthy people. So this happens kind of throughout the history of plants, Mm -hmm. (laughs) really. But it essentially kind of started with monks because monks had the time Mm -hmm. to learn the art of the pruning and the care and all that stuff. Um, and then it became prized to obtain those things. So initially, you know, they were only obtained by the wealthy and then it kind of eventually trickles down as like more artists and things become in demand. More people tend to learn the art, uh, to make money. And as more people tend to learn the art, it becomes less elitist and a little bit more affordable and accessible to other classes. Um, 
And the same thing with the plants as well. Once the demand is up, oftentimes there's a period of time where plants are really expensive or really hard to get. And then, uh, you know, in order to make money, people develop ways to make more of those plants or, you know, find more of those plants. And so then they're able to be more accessible to other classes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of how it developed in the same way. Like, uh, you know, the wealthy had them and then eventually, like in the Middle Ages around, they kind of became available to more social classes and were a more widely spread practice. So next region you mention like the Greeks and like Roman Empire and what was their Yeah. Well, so... What did they bring to the table as far as gardening? <laughs> Gardens were kind of given the purpose in like Egyptian, Greek and Roman times as both like pleasurable and functional spaces mm-hmm. so they wanted a place that looked nice and was appealing but they often also grew like herbs and fruit trees and things like that um in the case of like house plants um they actually did keep house plants um and they were kind of the first people to really do so on a more like regular basis um especially the wealthy right Uh, And those were usually in, like, marble or terracotta pots. Mostly marble was the Romans. (laughs) But um, the Egyptians especially liked to plant a lot of trees because they used them both as, like, food sources and shade and protection from the desert. Mm -hmm. So they would kind of, like, line their gardens with trees to protect them, but then also get something out of it Mm -hmm. um they almost always had water features in egyptian gardens it was like an important thing to them it's often depicted that there were water features in their gardens like fountains or ponds or just more often ponds but i didn't look up what kind of fountains would be available at that time but the ones I looked at looked ornate enough that if you could put a fountain in there, <laughs> yeah. I don't doubt that someone did. Um, and oftentimes the Egyptians actually buried their dead with funeral gardens, oh. which were like small replicas of gardens. Not quite the same as like a regular garden, but like mm-hmm. meant to be a place you could wander and relax. Especially like the Greeks and Romans loved showy stuff. Big varieties of, like, fragrant roses and, like, you know, really large flowers and things like that. That was kind of part of the wealthy's game was, like, to, you know, collect the biggest, showiest variety of those things and, like, have them hanging about their gardens and their homes. Um, So is this, like, the rise of the rose? (laughs) Um, I think the rose has probably always been an ornamental plant, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, they definitely particularly <laughs> enjoyed it. Like, as far as regular houseplants go, mm-hmm. um, they really just enjoyed the ornamental large species of roses, and they were, like, not necessarily growing there in abundance at that time. Mm-hmm. Um 
definitely probably the Middle East was where some of those like bigger ones were. So as they were conquering those places, I imagine they brought some of those things back. Um, really popular plants for these gardens were like cypress, rosemary, uh, mulberry trees, the roses. Roses. <laughs> roses for days. Mm-hmm. Pretty much after that, plants became very practical. Mm. Like, you had maybe some herbs for eating. Right. You had maybe, like, a couple plants in your garden. But people really didn't grow plants for pleasure. They didn't have places where they could put plants where they would survive and they didn't have um, you know, so much information on plants to be able to identify really what different ones were. Right. So, except for like really obvious things, probably like roses or things like that, where like maybe you don't know what variety of rose it is, but you're like, yeah, that's a rose. Right. There was some of that, but plants kind of like just as far as like ornamental decoration uh, fell out of favor for a long time. Um, Plants come back kind of in the Renaissance. And part of the reason for that is between these two times, people knew that plants had medicinal purposes but the references they had for what plants had what purposes was the materia medical medica um and that was written by a greek doctor who served in the roman army and he kind of solidified the idea that plants were medicine but after his documents were kind of passed down over and over again with multiple copies, including like rewritten and redrawn copies, a lot of the original work was not the same anymore. And so people were misidentifying plants and unable to cure the proper ailment using the proper plant because they didn't actually have the right information like things had completely different pictures from what they started as there were like weird plants where especially if you had a name that was like mugwort it was like over time the picture would turn into like a plant with a mug on it that was the kind of stuff that used to happen you know what I mean so it was like oh I can't really see this, so it said bird, right? <laughs> I was going to draw a bird. That was the kind of stuff that kind of started to happen. And um, so it basically just caused that knowledge to be useless. People knew plants could be used for medicine, but unless you happen to stumble upon the right thing, it was very difficult to identify what you were using. And so then we kind of entered an age of exploration And it renewed this interest in botany. Um, 
people saw other cultures, tribal cultures, things like that, using plants as medicine, knowing how to identify those plants, um, you know, encountering new plants and realizing that they could treat, you know, could potentially treat ailments. Um, and so that kind of brought the interest in learning about plants back Mm -hmm. into more popular culture. Um, wealthier families were also able to kind of collect some of these more exotic plants. Right. And it was a really good, like, stamp of your wealth. You know, famous families like the Medici's. Having a plant from the Bahamas. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you had to take, you know, what is it, like a... Weeks? Month long, <laughs> a couple months long boat ride to like get to this plan and then somehow manage to like keep it alive until you bring it back. So, um, and part of the reason that it was mostly wealthy families too, is that they were the only people who could afford to like have their homes constantly heated, um, afford to, you know, even attempt to replicate the environment where you kind of exotic plant Mm -hmm. would survive in like, England or Spain or something like that, you know. Are we still far away from greenhouses? Well, so this is kind of the time where that kind of stuff starts. um, Because these plants with medicinal properties were becoming popular, and so there was more of an interest in botany. um, Starting in Italian universities, they started actually teaching botany, and then that actually kind of spurred them into making the first botanical gardens. Um, And that's because botanical gardens were basically like living encyclopedias for what plants, you know, were used for what purposes doing this they were able to discover that they could dry plants and a lot of plants dried well um then they eventually you know made greenhouses so that they could keep the plants you know even more exotic plants plants that weren't surviving on their own there um alive longer and uh so the first botanical garden was in padua in 1545 and then very quickly following that, there was one in Pisa. Uh, and then... You said this is the first official botanical garden? Right. Okay. Um, and then they kind of just spread across Italy and out to Western Europe through the 15 and 1600s. Um, and then that kind of like made greenhouses a little bit more like popular just because they wanted to replicate that environment and like, you know, it's kind of like a competition. Right. Always. (laughs) Who, you know, who can house the most Mm -hmm. stuff? Um, Who has the craziest, most exotic plants? Yeah. Who knows how to make the most medicines? (laughs) Exactly. They just insisted on doing as much as they possibly could. Um, But it was good because it, it did help. Um, it gave them the encyclopedia that you they were looking for and uh, it encouraged them to, you know, really continue learning about these plants. And mm-hmm. that basis of knowledge definitely brought about 
a lot more things that we have today. So it was good. Also probably bad in other ways, but (laughs) those are for other episodes. Yeah. And so then, you know, kind of like that really rolled into the Victorian era, which is like the big era for actual houseplants, like houseplants that we know and love today. Mm -hmm. Um, They really just like took off during that era because we finally got indoor heating and architecture allowed more light into homes because before that, to keep in heat and things, there weren't so many windows and things like that Um, and they were just structured differently so the light that entered the home was different Um, but with the architecture of like having bigger windows and combined heating like you could actually replicate comfortable conditions for a plant inside your home Um, this was especially true for the wealthy and also in the beginning, kind of the upper middle class, and then eventually trickling down as those other amenities trickle down uh, for everyone else. Um, some of the most common plants of this era were Aspidistra, Boston Ferns, Fuchsia, Jasmine. Um, there was also a few different species of palms that were really popular. They were tropical and big and leafy. Um, Orchids really took off during this time, which we'll talk about in another episode, but um, it was a difficult environment to replicate. So the wealthy really competed for having the best orchid, you know, the longest, with the biggest flowers. That was just a huge thing, um, and it was like... The peak sign that you were a person of wealth during that time. This was also when they started coming out with, like, those books about, like, this is what this flower means, and if you send it to this person in this kind of arrangement, then it means this thing. And, like, I feel like this is the time period when, it, like, they start to become so much more accessible that they can be, like, sent to people for messages and... uh I feel like this was probably the time period when a lot of our current associations with plants might have been solidified. I'm sure there were many different books with uh, different definitions, but like this is where we start to get them in writing. Yeah, and also uh, this is kind of the first time where books about plant care came out as well. Yeah. So the interest in plants in general because they they were now like so much more accessible to the general population Mm -hmm. just like really boomed and was especially valued in you know that western european culture was like very um prevalent and you know even as just like regular house plants the kind of like became more popular and accessible to the middle class more people were getting them because more people were flocking to cities Mm -hmm. and leaving agrarian life behind and so they wanted something of that in their home and it was like posh and stylish to have it anyway so 
Why wouldn't you? I bet with all those fireplaces throughout the house, it was also helpful to have so much plant cycling through the air. Yeah, definitely. And Unknown benefit. To be fair, though, this was also the time where people didn't really understand the effects that plants had on the environment. So uh, a lot of plants were destroyed during this time. A lot of um, invasive plants were able to move during this time, like really move, move continents, move countries. They were out and about and ready to eat all your stuff. Like they, (laughs) this was the time. They were like, we are in, we are down for this. Nobody's paying attention. (laughs) They're just bringing me to all these new places where I have no competitors. Yeah, definitely. And if you don't know, you know, some people now even just kind of like throw plants outside. Yeah. And it just takes one a lot of the time. So that was the time. (laughs) And kind of since then, uh, plants have been at least mildly popular for one reason or another. Uh, Different plants come in and out. Yeah. But... um, it's common for people to have plants in their homes, and today it's kind of taken off. It's pretty crazy how many people now are Instagramming their little house plants, and yeah, social you know. media. I definitely think was a big proponent for uh, people trying to create more beautiful, you know inside gardens they're like oh look at my windowsill like i have all these beautiful you know hanging terrariums uh, i've got succulents i've got vines uh and so having a a platform to be able to share and be proud and like see what other people's designs are i mean that's kind of the idea with like all these uh like the plant guidebooks like once people had them it was like boom like now we can all do it yeah so with like Instagram, well, it's like, oh, well, I could do this. <laughs> yeah, and we have like a great wealth of information that we have access to now with mm-hmm. the internet and everything. So there's definitely a lot of that. Um, basically, it's estimated that about 4 million of the 5 million people to pick up gardening in 2018 were millennials. So like plants right now are super popular Mm -hmm. with younger-ish people. Yeah. (laughs) 20s to 30s. Yeah. Um, And even like a fourth of the $52.3 billion spent on lawn and garden retail products are attributed to people 18 to 31. See, we're not buying houses. (laughs) We're buying plants. We're buying plants. (laughs) Buying plants, we are like, yes. yes. A lot of it they think has to do kind of with... The idea of nurturing something Mm, for a lot of people, especially people who are busy or work difficult hours or whatever, people aren't having as many kids. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can't afford a pet. You're like, I want a plant. You get a plant, you nurture it, you follow the care instructions, Mm -hmm. it gets bigger, maybe it makes baby plants. You're like, I am doing something right for the world. Yeah. I am spreading the environment all the way across my apartment. I definitely have, like, little gardens set up throughout my house. I have, like, my windowsill in my kitchen, so while I'm cooking, I get to look at all these different plants. Uh, at my desk, I have a whole little garden next to that, and I'm like, look at all these plants I'm growing, and I got herbs, and I can just, like, I'll just, like, rustle my hands there and smell them. 
and then my sunroom is like all those tropical plants and it just it really does make me feel good about how I'm setting up my house I don't know if that's just the influence of social media <laughs> being like you're adulting if you have plants you can nurture things yeah and it's like Part of it is, too, is not terribly time-consuming, and, you know, you do get to, like, see something actually grow, which is nice. Um, It's also true that this social media-driven craze has kind of created a community of people who are interested in plants. So, um, this very virtual thing is also this very real thing for a lot of people who are able to connect with people online, who are able to connect with people in person. People do plant swaps. People go to plant places. There's plant nights. There's like a very real social community Mm -hmm. that has developed uh, with plants, which for millennials, I think, is something that is important to them. And so that also kind of helps and then you know it doesn't hurt that plants create a positive atmosphere there's lots of studies that show having plants is helpful in various ways creates oxygen blah 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 Mm -hmm. all those things that i don't have to tell you because you can definitely read a buzzfeed article on it (laughs) and so many of us live in urban or suburban areas and having you know a few different plants to look at besides lawn and dead trees for six months <laughs> can be really uplifting <laughs> yeah definitely and I think it helps people feel like they're kind of communicating with nature even if they're not mm-hmm. directly in contact with nature and it's also kind of part of self care culture I think as well there's this big culture for like take care of yourself and like take care of your space and so yeah. you want something that's aesthetically beautiful you also want something that you think will help you physically, emotionally. Yeah. And plants are that thing. I mean, they might die, but while they're alive, they don't really cause you any stress. They don't wake you up in the middle of the night. All right, my prediction is that Penjing and Bonsai is going to make a big come up then. <laughs> if we're coming into the, the self-care and we all like get more confident in our plant caretaking abilities and so there's like this huge surge like a zen garden yeah like three steps up from that yeah yeah i think it's definitely a possibility i'm excited to see the new things that they'll come up with you know since the victorian era we've gotten things like succulents and airplanes and other types of vermilions and like different types of orchids and there's all kinds of stuff uh so it's really interesting to see how things change and working at a florist i get to see new things sometimes and that's cool Mm -hmm. there's a lot of cool ficuses and figs and stuff like that um that i get to see come through which is kind of nice and if i like it enough i'll try to take it home yeah that's uh an abridged (laughs) history of houseplants hopefully i didn't get anything too terribly wrong but they have a solid place in our culture and i think this background definitely lends itself to a bigger understanding of 
some of the other plants that we have that are so popular today. Um, we just have so many things that we technically have access to, but we've discovered specifically with certain plants how to care for and propagate and commercialize them in some way. And so when you kind of know this background of history, you can kind of understand how we got to the point with these other plants. And I think one of the cool things about owning houseplants is that all the plants in the room that we're sitting in right now came from, you know, a different place and all have their own place, not only like out in the world, but in our society and our history. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good. Pretty cool. What are we going to do for our next episode? We are going to talk about orchids. So, Minnie's tip for today is that pretty much all of the plants that you have in your home are tropical or subtropical plants. So, knowing a little bit about where your plant comes from is going to help you care for it properly. So, you know, if you have a cactus... A lot of cactuses grow in the desert. They don't want any water on them because in the desert, you don't really have much water on them. Uh, you know, if you have a plant, you know, like an orchid, orchid grows on, on a tree. It takes a lot of its moisture just from like tree runoff or from the air. So your orchid doesn't want to be sitting and drowning in water. You know, so these little kind of insights into where your plant comes from will help you in the long run to care for it. Know your plant's true home. Yeah, and then you can replicate that usually pretty easily in your home. Well, thank you guys for joining us for our first official episode. Uh, We should have our next episode coming out pretty soon. It'll be jam full of wonderful facts and probably at least one myth. (laughs) <laughs> well, we have to do a myth next time, right? Because you did truth this time. Is that how it works? No, no. it's a, it's a game every time. <laughs> See you guys later. Bye.